Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and as always, I am here in the studio with my co-host, Karen Milliken. <laughs> that was a long pause. Well, I was, I, was, <laughs> I was debating which adjective to put in front of your proper name. And you chose none. Yeah, except you're like bundled up in a coat right now, so I was going to say cold Karen. Yeah, but that comes off as like harsh. Hey, if the shoe fits. <laughs> Take it back. <laughs> Back. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, well, we're back this week with Dr. Daryl Bach to talk through the book of Luke. Woo! It's going to be awesome. Woo! You guys enjoy this conversation. We are back this week with Dr. Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he knows a lot about Luke. Welcome, Dr. Bach. Glad to be here. And uh, hopefully the next half hour will expose all my ignorance. So we'll be in good shape. <laughs> well, I it was, think uh, it's going to expose our ignorance. Yeah, yeah that's a, uh, yeah. We just recorded the first episode and when Dr. Bach stepped out, Karen and I were like, yeah, <laughs> we've got some work to do. I would like our audience to know that he's not using any notes of any kind. Yeah, all no. information's in his brain. No, right. it's just there. Yep, that's right. We started here, and it is not left. <laughs> uh, which Dementia is good. Excluded. Yeah, exactly. Maybe he's just a robot. <laughs> so, last episode we talked quite a bit about context and background and some how things tie together, especially with the two-volume Luke-Acts. But specifically for this episode, just camping out in the actual gospel of Luke, it starts off in such a fascinating way in that there's two birth narratives. That's right. There's this one with John the Baptist and this one with Jesus, and they're intertwined really significantly. The first place is this communication by this angel who appears to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad. And he says, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, which is totally Malachi 4. Yeah, it's Malachi 4. And it also emphasizes something we said in the last podcast. And this is unique to Luke. We don't see this anywhere else. And that is that the reconciliation that John is preaching not only involves the individual and God, but it involves bringing people together. So we've got the fathers and the children and the disobedient to the just. So just, I mean, those are broad categories. It kind of covers everybody. And uh, you go from there. But it tees up in a lot of ways what Luke is going to, this major theme throughout his gospel of this reconciliation between the outsiders and the insiders. Exactly. The prepared people are people who ultimately are going to be reconciled to one another, that God is going to bring together. He's going to take, you know, I'll use the language of Ephesians here, those who are far off and those who are near, he's going to make them one. Yeah. But then you also have this lowly girl in like no name Nazareth. 13 year old. Yeah. 13 yeah, that's year old. Okay. It's so crazy. <laughs> that is terrifying. Seventh grade. <laughs> seventh, seventh grader. Okay. Well, Karen looks like she's 13. The, mid- the, the, the middle schoolers will not be thought of the same yeah, way. No. Yeah, no. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so you have this lowly girl in kind of no name Nazareth and 13 year old. 13 year old. But no status, no social standing of, of any kind of sort. She lives in Galilee. Okay, not in Jerusalem, not in Rome. Yep. She's a woman. She's not a man. 
Yep. She's barely on the cusp of adulthood. Uh, her life, in many ways, is just beginning. Mm. And the normal beginning would look a little different yep. than what she's getting ready to go through. Yep. And so God drops this message on her. And the interesting thing is the contrast between her and Elizabeth, who is an old woman who's longed to have a child but never has, is beyond the age of childbearing, so much so that when Zechariah gets the announcement, you're going to have a child, you know, he's like, well, I'm already taking out Social Security. How does that work? And, and, and so, and in the midst of that, he, uh, the angel says, well, I'm going to give you a little quiet time to meditate on what it is that God has said here because you're yeah. not going to speak or, or hear anything for a few months while you contemplate that God does what he says. Yeah. The point of the infancy material is twofold. It's to show the pietistic roots of every mm. all the people who surround Jesus. But the more important idea is, is that God does what he says. Yeah. And you can trust his word. So if God says it, no matter how unusual or unbelievable it may sound, and it sounded unbelievable to Zechariah, and Mary had a question too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Uh, I'm a virgin. That's exactly right. <laughs> That, Are you talking that, to me? <laughs> that's exactly right. So whether you're a 70-year-old or, or who knows, a very, very old man. I made him older than me. and uh, Or a very, very young girl. Yeah. They both had taken Biology 101. Yeah, right. They knew how that worked. Mm -hmm. And they went, what? Mm. What? Yeah. So God did two very unusual things, one slightly more unusual than the other. Because the example of the Old Testament was when someone was childless and eventually had a child, they would have a significant child on the plan of God. There were numerous stories like that in the Old Testament. But uh, what happened to Mary had no precedent because this is a human being with no precedent. So you put those two next to one another. John is looking up at Jesus in the end, and we've set the stage for the ministry of John the Baptist. So you have John the Baptist born. He's six months-ish older than Jesus. Right. They're related in some way. Yep. But then you have the birth of a king would always be accompanied by all sorts of pronouncements and okay, celebrations. So, so just, and, ima just imagine, okay? Just just be the angels for a second, okay? God calls the angels together before the foundational world. I got a plan, <laughs> okay? I'm going to send an incarnation of me to the earth. How do you think we should announce this, yeah. Okay. And angels all go, oh, I know how this should work. Okay, this should be in a capital city. It should be visible to all. It should be a big deal. We should make a big scream and loud splash, you know, and, and we should put our best PR people on it. And uh, God says, that's a wonderful plan. That's not what we're doing. Let's do the That's right. So I'm going, to, I'm going to pick a little village mm. in a stretch of the Roman Empire most people don't think about. Forget the Hilton, okay, or forget Crown Plaza or W, and not even a Motel 6. We're going to have this baby born among animals, mm -hmm. and we're going to put him in a manger, and it's going to be a very average family. It's not going to be the family that lives, you know, in Highland Park. Yeah. And that's where we're going to start from. And yeah, we'll have, well, just to have a little fun, we'll send the angels to talk to the shepherds, yeah, 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 yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. But beyond that, that's all the PR we need. Yeah. 
and we'll go from there. This is a lower class family from Garland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they. Like you that. know, I mean, I mean, Joseph does have a vocation, so he's not as poor as he could be, but he's he's probably part of what little middle or lower middle class existed in the ancient world. Yeah. But there's nothing, nothing, other than a Davidic heritage. Mm-hmm that says this is the family from which the Messiah is going to come. Born in Bethlehem, which was predicted because God keeps his word, okay? He says he's going to do it. He's going to do do it, it, and we're off and running. I mean, it really, it stretches your view of God to think what would I have expected God to do and for it to be so totally opposite of that, it really makes you sit back and question, like, do I know this God? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's so, I think it points to how through the back door and under the radar, God likes to move. Well, I mean, and praise him that he's not predictable, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And what does it mean to emulate this God? Mm, Totally. What does it mean to live in a way that is so contrastive to the bombast and superficiality that we often yeah. put into our lives and our world by trying to broadcast about who we are and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I think if God were inventing social media, the platform that he would use is Faceless Book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, Absolutely. It, there is a groundedness and a humility mm-hmm. in the way in which even Jesus exercises his power in his ministry yep. that uh, is something to be emulated and pursued. It works against all our natural instincts. Yes. So Jesus is born. He's presented in the temple. Only hint of a problem in the entire infancy narrative is what Simeon says to Mary. Totally. So I'll, I'll just read it real quick. Uh, this is just really fascinating. This is verse 33 of Luke 2. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Dead go. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I want that. <laughs> yeah, you're a 13 year old girl with an infant, you know, and this prophet is like, bro, and you're like, whoa, what is that? Let me tell you your future. But yeah, it's a it's I a litmus test. Totally, litmus he's the line in the sand. Line. If you want to know how you're responding to God, just take a look at how you're responding to Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's that simple. And it's interesting too that it's not just like a dividing line in the sand in regard to like external loyalty. That's right. what he says. Is the thoughts of many hearts will be. That's revealed. right. It's an internal evaluation. Totally. Yeah. And that's so right. And everything about the Gospels, this isn't just Luke, is pointing to the internal motivations for why we do what we do. I mean, just think about the Sermon on the Mount and what we call the six antitheses. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've heard it said, but I say unto you, every Mm -hmm. one of them is probing the inside. You know, we use this picture of God being like this potter who pushes on the clay, but the potter who pushes on the clay pushes on the outside. The potter that is God pushes on the inside. And so... uh, He's coming up from underneath. Exactly right. uh, Yeah, he's the over, under, around, and through God. (laughs) So, (laughs) Talk to us about the significance of the genealogy of Jesus in Luke. Well, the significant twofold, it goes all the way back to Adam, and then it sets up the temptations, okay? So what Adam failed to be able to do, Jesus is now able to do, and he does it representing 
all of mankind because it ends Adam, son of Adam, son of God. Yeah. And in son of God in this particular use in the genealogy is not so much son of God, yeah, you know, yeah, think yeah. about the divine side. It's thinking about the human connection of Jesus, who he is as incarnate humanity. And you see that because the very next verse is he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted. Exactly right. right. The, the humanity of Jesus is tested. That's right. And we see him overcoming that which Adam failed yep. to do. And so he now shows his qualifications, if you will, to be the representative of humanity coming from the place that humanity should have been coming from all along, Yeah, which is so, to be responsive to God. And Jesus passes the test with flying yeah, colors. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, there's this whole, the, I mean, anytime you see the number 40 in the scriptures, like, yeah. ding, 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 pay attention to that. <laughs> That's right, exactly know? right. So you have really what Israel also failed to do right. in its wanderings. You have this new Israelite or a new Israel coming out. And then on the tail end of that, he goes to Nazareth and then pulls out this scroll and reads from Isaiah 61 and pronounces his messianic ministry. And then there's one other line from another text in Isaiah, which if you look at that in context is... God rebuking Israel for not being the people he called them to be. So what Jesus is in effect saying is, I'm going to be that which you as a people should have been. And the mission that I have is designed to fill that hole. So that's important. And we move on from there. He compares himself to Elijah and Elisha, which there's another interesting thing that goes on in that passage in Luke 4 where we're in the synagogue. It's Most people miss it. And it is... Jesus compares himself to Elijah and Elisha, and he makes the point that the only people who were ministered to in those two contexts were Gentiles. (laughs) Now, in the first half of that passage, when Jesus presents himself, they go, could this possibly be? Yeah. But the moment he suggests that Gentiles are in the the situation (laughs) and he points, pushes towards this reconciliation, you get the presence of Jewish privilege, okay? And and in the midst of doing that, you get a reaction. And in the midst of that reaction, you're running counter to where it is God is trying to take people. Well, they try to kill him. They do. That's right. They were, they were to use a German phrase, nicked fro, which being translated means not happy. <laughs> well, Jesus, Jesus then declares himself, hey, I, I am the one. That's right. And then from Luke 4 on, he does ministry in the Galilee area, and then he begins a journey. To and he Jerusalem. is living out the very declarations that he made in the synagogue that is a description of his ministry under the power and direction of the Spirit, because he's the anointed one when he does this. And he's reaching out to people on the fringe. He's touching a variety of lives. He's saying, I am the physician who doesn't deal with those who are well, but those who are sick. And he's actually trying to get people to understand they all need a physician. I mean, which one of us doesn't need a doctor? And he's he's moving in the direction of showing his power. And then there are these PowerPoints. That's what I call miracles. Miracles are points about Jesus's power. They are audio visuals that are pointing beyond the surface of what is being healed to pointing to what Jesus is capable of having the power of creation standing behind him. So at the end of chapter eight, what you get is a series of miracles, a kind of A to Z series of miracles, which starts off with the calming of the wind and the waves where the disciples ask, who is this who's able to command the winds and the waves and they obey him, to which the answer 
answer is that's a very good question. <laughs> and then, then we get the healing of the Gerizim demoniac, and then we get the woman with the flow of blood, and then we get raising Jairus' daughter, which means that we deal with dominion, demons, disease, and death yep. in sequence. And in the midst of doing that, we show the scope of Jesus' power, which is unlike the power of any. You can take almost any miracle that Jesus performs, and you can find an Old Testament analogy for that. Only the mm. healing of the blind just about yeah. is excluded from yeah. that list. But who is able to do the array of things that Jesus is doing? The answer to that question is, hmm. Yeah. God. <laughs> That's right. Well, and it, it helps you understand maybe why Jesus didn't heal everybody. Yeah. Like he could have came and... Anybody that he saw with a disease or any blind person that he saw or whatever it might be, he could have done something. What's interesting about miracles is, and this is probably a little clearer in Mark than it is in Luke, although it's in all the Gospels, is, is that he tends to discourage an emphasis on his healing because yeah. then the emphasis is on that which is pointing to a deeper reality right. that he wants people's attention drawn to. For example, when he raises Jairus' daughter, I love this because you just think about this for a second. He tells Jairus' parents, don't tell anybody what happened. Wait a minute now. I just had mourners outside my yeah. house. The only reason they're here is because they knew that daughter was dead. And when they see her playing again, they're going to go, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, so the point is he doesn't want the miracles to be the center of his ministry. His ministry is about something far more profound. There's another point that's wrapped up in this, and that is Jesus spends most of the time, this is true of all the synoptic gospels, Jesus spends his time less talking about who he is than showing who he is. Yeah. So you understand who Jesus is by what he does. And what he does involves what I like to call cultural scripts. So I'll give you an example of a cultural script. The cowboys are going to the frozen tundra to melt the cheese heads. Okay. <laughs> all yeah, right. We all know what that means. That's a beautiful yeah. English sentence that yeah. most, if someone learning English in Saudi Arabia could look up every word in an Arabic English dictionary, yeah. look up every definition, they still wouldn't know what that sentence is about because they don't share the culture. Yeah. So if you understand culturally what certain acts mean, then you will understand what Jesus is doing, but he's not out broadcasting everything that he's doing because the culture is what triggers Right. and shows what's going on, that he's doing God stuff. Yep. And in the midst of doing that in an array of air, I'm doing God stuff here. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Or that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk. The healing of the paralytic, which is about a divine power of forgiveness. Or marching into the temple and taking control of it, that showing that the temple is something he has authority over. Or here's one that no one thinks about. And that is taking liturgy about the past over and transforming all of its symbolism, even though it comes out of the Pentateuch, and making it about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? The bread, right. the wine. Exactly the, yeah, right. Yeah. He totally reinterprets and reconfigures the entire operation. So there are multiples of these all the way through the Gospels, some of them unique to Luke, some of them shared with the other synoptic Gospels in which Jesus is saying, if you will pay attention to what is going on, what I am doing, then you understand. And you see it in chapter 7 when John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you the one yeah, to come or yeah. should we expect another? Now, my yeah. joke is, is that John the Baptist didn't watch enough television. <laughs> he didn't ask this question the right way. He yeah. should have asked it, are you the one to come or should we expect another? Yes or no. Okay. <laughs> okay. He left it open-ended. So when you give a 
Jesus a when question, Jesus open -ended, on a question he's going to run with, gonna it. Run with yeah. it. So yeah. he says, go and tell John what you see and hear. And the proof is in what he is doing mm -hmm. as much as what he is saying. There is the last line that says, and the good news of the gospel is preached to the poor, but everything else is stuff that he is doing. And if they understand the cultural scripts that are underneath those actions, he can forgive. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He has the right to declare what's clean and unclean. That one's not so much in Luke as in Mark and Matthew. Mm. He has authority over the temple. He Cast has the right. Spirits. He casts out spirits. Yeah. He has authority, the official liturgy of Judaism, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just go through the list, and then all of a sudden you recognize by what he's doing, you come to recognize who he is because words are cheap, mm -hmm. Okay. But actions speak. Yeah. I mean, it's significant to think, though, that even John the Baptist, the one who was declaring that yes. he was going to come, is sitting there raising his hand going, you're not doing what I expected exactly you to do. Correct. Are you the right mm -hmm. guy? Exactly right. And, and, of course, this is so bothersome to some people. They say in very understandable terms, well, John the Baptist wasn't really doubting. He was trying to bring it out for everybody else. No. Uh, so. you know, my answer to that confused. is, ah, bah, humbug. No, he was as confused as anybody. Yeah. Yeah. He did not expect a suffering Messiah. No one did. When Jesus announced to the disciples that he was going to suffer in Luke 9, Peter goes, no. Nope that doesn't happen. And of course, this isn't in Luke, it's in the other gospel. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Mm. I mean, that you do not understand the kind of Messiah that I'm going to be. And we're back right. to this theme of humility again, that Jesus empties himself, that Jesus humbled himself as a human being, walked faithfully with God, took the abuse that the world offered in order to take our place so that he could lift us, and this, I will use the language of the hymns, the worms up and can reconnect them to the image of God and to that which makes humanity unique in their connection with God. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think, you talked about Luke 8, he shows his power over disease and death uh -huh. and demons. And at what point do people start to get it? Because even John's questioning. Well, you, you, they're starting to get it with the with the action on the creation. I mean, who is this who's able to command the winds and the waves and they obey him? And they understand that in the background, the cultural script is who controls the creation? You know, God does ultimately. And of course, when he defeats the demons, it, and again, the cultural script is in Jewish expectation, even beyond the Old Testament, is the idea that when the kingdom of God comes, Satan will be defeated. So that's a statement in that direction. And of course, the woman with the flow of blood, he can make that which is unclean, clean. And then, of course, obviously, the most transparent one is the raising from the dead. He has control over life. Well, who in the universe has control over life? I mean, so these are all cultural scripts which are being activated. And at, I tell people it's like bricks in a wall and you're doing a portrait. And the more bricks you get, the clearer the portrait becomes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you're getting. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Well, but then right after Peter's confession in Luke 9, you have this really explicit well, the transfiguration of right. Jesus in front of, uh, what is it, Peter, James, and John. A little sneak preview for just three of them. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you got Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, Jesus yeah. is transfigured before yeah. them. Moses and yeah. Elijah show up at the Dagon party. Yeah, you know, like what they're talking about the Exodus. So they're talking about his coming death and what that's going to provide, which they weren't expecting. Yeah, okay? right. Around, surrounded by teaching on discipleship that says basically, you know, if you're going to become a disciple, it's not going to be take this, up your cross. This is not yep. going to be a dance. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, it, it might be a dance, but it, it's going to be a hard one. Yeah. You know, not one you're going to enjoy. It, exactly. Time. Right. Yeah. yeah, so you better be prepared for the space that that represents, and you better, later on, he says, you better count the cost. So Jesus is never in the position of what I call baiting people, of suggesting, hey, I want to step you into something good, and then once you step into the good, now I'm going to tell you the hard part, okay? Yeah. Yeah. He tells you from the very front what you're stepping into, and then everything about what's called the journey to Jerusalem section, which is uniquely framed by Luke. It's there in Mark, and it's there in Matthew, but Luke really makes a big deal of this journey to Jerusalem. Yeah, where he, he says he turns his start, face, right? Turns his face yeah. to Jerusalem, and then there are like six different notes, and the last three happen within the space of a chapter and a half. There's a midway turning point in chapter 13. He's doing several things in this section. He is one, showing how the opposition continues, even though he continues to exercise grace mm -hmm. to those who are rejecting him. So we have what I call mirror miracles, miracles that look like the front of the gospel. Also in this section, very much similar, very much the same, very much getting the same reaction. He's preparing his disciples for his coming absence. He is teaching what the kingdom is going to be like and what they need to be as people, even though he's not going to be with them. And then the third thing that we're seeing are, are various ethical teachings on discipleship and that kind of thing, which shows the character of what it's going to take to be able to live in that world in that way. Yeah. And so he's weaving all those three together. So you get much more ethical teaching in Luke than you do in almost any gospel. There's far more about money. Yeah. in Luke's gospel than yeah. there is anywhere else. There's far more about prayer in Luke's gospel than there is in, any, in anywhere else. There's a lot of discussion about accountability to God. There's one passage in Luke 12 that talks about the disobedient servant who's going to be chopped beef. And I say, you know, you think barbecue's a bad deal. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you don't want to be chopped beef in front of the Lord. You don't want to do the opposite of what he calls us to do because there will be an accounting one day. Yep. There are parables of stewardship. The idea of stewardship in the Bible as a whole is very important. How we manage what it is that God gifts us to be, and uh, and we don't talk enough about it. I, I tell my students, I said I was 20 years teaching theology before I realized how important the concept of stewardship is in the Bible and what that means for accountability in our walk with God. Mm. And so Luke is emphasizing those almost. There are several parables that talk about our accountability to God and the responsibility we have to manage what he gives us well. Yeah. So all that is woven together so that when we get to the final part of the gospel, you know, and we get to Jerusalem, when we go through that experience of the last week, we understand not only what Jesus is dying for, but who he is trying to make us to be as a result of what it is that he's doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked at the beginning of this episode about Simeon's pronouncement to Mary. Mm -hmm. Okay, this he's the litmus test. Right. He's the dividing line. Right. There's an interesting passage in Luke 12, where he talks about, and, and a lot of times we think about Jesus as kind of this Mr. Rogers type <laughs> figure, you know, who's just kind of like happy all the time. He's the sweetest guy in the world. And, like, and then, you know, nice. and then he says stuff like this. 
I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it was already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Obviously, the baptism, uh, his atonement, his sacrifice. Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father and son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, which I mean, you know, it yeah. happens anyway. Um, <laughs> daughter-in-law given. against mother-in-law. Yeah, <laughs> um, but he's talking about, he's saying like, there is something about me that is this But here's the irony. Line. Okay, the irony is he's the litmus test. So the division is not something he himself intended right. to generate. Right. right. It's generated by the reaction to, to him. him. That's right. 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 Because some people see what it is that Jesus brings and other people want nothing to do with it. So that's what produces the division. It unfortunately is part of what his coming involves. And then the question becomes, uh, Dr. Hunter, who was my boss for years and who was chair of our New Testament department, used to like love this line. I think it's very, very true. He said, in effect, the problem with what the Bible is calling for is, is that if we'll just obey God, we'll all be okay. <laughs> and, and, yeah. you know, but it's the revealing, it's that revealing the hearts. That's the litmus test. It totally is. It's a totally, it, it basically, you know, you put that, you know, when you put that litmus paper in that, you mm-hmm. want to figure out where, whether it's acid or base, mm-hmm. that's what you get. You put Jesus on people and you find out where their hearts are inclined mm-hmm. and by the response to him, you know, the one who is a part of my family, Jesus said this, isn't the one who hears what I say, it's who does what I say. Right. And so again, that talk is cheap. Yep. Action speaks louder than words. Mm. And you have this Messiah who is talking about this uh, upside down nature of the kingdom. The poor are the ones who become blessed. Mm-hmm. The, the outsiders become insiders. The ones who don't have anything, even though they think what they have is substantive, it's going to be taken away and given to somebody else. That's right. And then at the end of the day, he goes, oh, and by the way, um, in order to usher in this kingdom, then I'm going to go be a suffering Messiah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to die. Yeah. And everybody's like, and, what are you talking about? And I just showed you the way. Yeah, totally. I just showed And oh, by the way, way, pick up your cross right. and follow me. That's right. So think about how much Jesus defended the right that he represented. Mm. He didn't. Yeah. This ability to do things that people never heard of, love your enemy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's at the center of the Sermon on the Plain. That's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke only zeroes in on one thing in the midst of that sermon, in the core of it. And that is, you need to love your enemy. This is how you show the character of God. This is how you show you are sons of God. Mm -hmm. Not by loving the people who love you, but by loving people who don't love you. Don't sinners love each other? Yeah. You know, what about your enemy? Yeah. Be more than a sinner. Yeah, totally. When I'm just sitting here thinking how much of this goes back to what we were talking about in the last episode of the power of God coming upon you, because the things that you're talking about are impossible. They do not own. come naturally. Yeah. This is not a default button. We're yeah. Hitting. <laughs> yeah. As I sit here listening and you're talking about all these things that Jesus said, I'm thinking, well, can't do that. Can't do that. 
can't do that. Yeah. But God. Yeah. And the hard thing is, is that maybe the reply in some spots is don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. You know, which tells us the hard assignment of the church is to be something it has to struggle to be. (laughs) And the only way it gets out of that struggle is to be responsive to the spirit of God and to the unique ways in which God works. And that does not come by instinct. It takes work. It takes suppressing a lot of natural responses that we have. It takes patience. It takes humility. It takes a little bit of deference. I have to think about others more than I think about myself. It is to be the servant and not to lord it over other people, which is another passage that Jesus talks about. I mean, the list of things that that are being asked for by people that are unnatural is deep and wide. Yeah, it's extensive. Yeah. Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world but lose or forfeit his very soul? You take the hit for other people. Yeah. I mean, it's like, hey, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Yeah. Deny yourself. Yeah. Take up your cross. Follow him into his kind of death and the life that comes through that. Take the hit for other people. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're talking about. You take the hit for other people and you serve them and you serve them whether they are responsive to you or not. You still seek to serve them. And in in doing that, you show that there is a way of life that is different than what most people experience around them. And hopefully the contrast stands out in such a way that at some point someone looks you in the eye and says, you're different than other people. What makes you tick? Something about uh, your light shine before men so they see your good works and, and glorify your God. God. That's exactly right. Who's in heaven. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Let's talk a little bit as we're drawing this to the close of the gospel. There's a really significant passage in, in all of this when Jesus is with his disciples right before he's arrested and goes to the cross where he does what you've alluded to a couple different times. Uh, uh, he reinstitutes the Passover elements mm-hmm. and talks about his body being the bread and then his blood being, he says, literally, this is the blood of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. What is going on there? Well, obviously, it is the death that is the sacrifice that inaugurates a new relationship with God. Mm-hmm. The covenant is a relationship between God and others that people step into, and it clears the way for the idea that that what Jesus has done, he's done on my behalf. He's paid a payment and a debt that I can't repay. He's done it on my behalf, and then out of gratitude and response, I am entering into this relationship in which I understand that Jesus is the great physician, that if I want to put my spiritual life in someone's hands, just like I go to the doctor, I don't go to the doctor and I say, hey, doc, this is my disease. Write me a prescription for X, Y, and Z. I'll come back in three weeks and I'll ask you to write another prescription for X, Y, and Z, and you tell the doctor what to know. You go to the doctor, he diagnoses you, he tells you what you're supposed to take as a prescription. He writes the prescription. You put your health in the doctor's hands. Yeah. 
So he's the, the expert. So the picture is you put your spiritual well-being in Jesus' hands, and then what Jesus does is to say, so you ask for prescription, I'll give you the Spirit. Yeah. And the Spirit of God is going to indwell you, and he's going to make you capable of being a different kind of person than mm. you've been, which is what we've been talking about. Right. And then in the midst of doing that, you now are able to walk with God, hear God, respond to God, respond to people, even people who attack you well, uh, et cetera. And you show this. Now, this is not a line from Luke, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in the midst of doing that, what you do is you show by the way in which you emulate the Savior who loved the world and gave himself. We love the world and give ourselves. And in the midst of that, we testify to what it is that God has done, not only for us, but what he makes available to people. Mm -hmm. And then the hope is, is that they will see the goodness and the grace that that represents, embrace it, and become changed people. Mm -hmm. So this new covenant that Jesus is cutting in his own blood. Goes back to Jeremiah. Two, Two primary provisions. The forgiveness... And what Jeremiah calls the writing the law in the heart, yeah. what Ezekiel pictures as a sprinkling or a washing or a cleansing mm. and putting my spirit within you. Yeah. So what that's is that the, internal That's change. exactly right. So yeah. what Ezekiel and Jeremiah are talking about are the same thing. They're just, they're just picturing it slightly yeah. differently. Yeah, right. What the law couldn't do on the outside, God, God is going did. to enable the person to do on the inside. Yeah, and the way eight. in which yeah. that happens is through the Spirit of yeah. God. So when we preach the gospel, we only preach about the cross and forgiveness of sins, we have truncated the gospel. Yep. Preach. The gospel is ultimately about the new life yeah. that is made. That's what makes it good news. Mm-hmm. All the forgiveness does, the forgiveness is like the bulldozer that cleans out the road so yeah. that you can lay the concrete, yeah. the Holy Spirit allows you to drive on that road and get to where you're going. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesus does. He, he goes and is examined, which is a total farce. We get some of his most explicit claims about himself. Um, in that scene? Yeah, in that scene. Yep. And then is unjustly handed over to be crucified. And, so the, you, and the crucifixion in Luke is about an unjust crucifixion. That's an innocent who goes to the death. There's, there's next to nothing said about substitution in that chapter 23. Mm-hmm. It's that the innocent has gone to die. There's also an important thing in the scene that's worth noting. In the scene, Jesus, when he's asked if he's the Christ, says he's going to ascend to the right hand of God. The way this is heard, Jesus is making a claim of exaltation. But the way this is heard is heard as blasphemy because if Jesus is not who he claims to be, it is blasphemy. Yep. It's like trains running on a track in opposite directions that collide. And blasphemy collides with exaltation in that scene. And then God's vote in that dispute is the resurrection. Because yeah. what Jesus predicted is you can do with me whatever you want, but God's going to vindicate me and put me at his right hand and you can write me at www.righthandofgod.com. Okay? Because I will be alive and one day I will come back as your judge. I may be the defendant now, but one day I'm coming back as your judge. They didn't like that. They were nicked fro again. Yeah. Okay? And then God's vote in that dispute, is it blasphemy or is it exaltation? The empty tomb was a check by the exaltation box that says not only is Jesus exalted, but he's exactly who he claimed to be as a result. Yeah, you go back to, what, Daniel 7? Yeah. The the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man riding on the clouds. 
He's given authority to judge the nations. Exactly right. And, and that's exactly who Jesus, that's what he, he says, that's me. That's exactly right. And uh, I remember sitting in your Life of Christ class back in, I don't know, it was 20, almost 20 years ago. That count, man. <laughs> that's right. Just and, after uh, Adam and Eve were kicked yeah. out of the garden. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I remember sitting in your class and hearing you talk about this and hearing you say like the irony of this is just like dripping off the page. Exactly that right. The people who are judging Jesus are quote unquote judging the judge the, of the whole world. The judge, that's right. <laughs> the eschatological. And, the, and, and son of man is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. It normally means a human being. But this human being in Daniel 7 does something human beings don't do. He rides, he rides the, clouds. the clouds. And the yeah, only just... figure riding the clouds in the Old Testament is God. Yeah, right. So he's doing, he's doing God stuff. Yeah. This is the point again. Human being doing God stuff. Remember, we raised the question of the last mm-hmm. podcast about the challenge for the church is how do you present Jesus who's the most unique human being who's ever walked the earth. Mm-hmm. And he receives this judgment authority. And then this is something to think about for Easter. I say this to my classes all the time. You know, we preach, come to Easter, we always preach, he's alive, we're going to be alive one day, and we miss one of the most important messages that Easter has, which is that Easter shows who Jesus is. Yeah, yeah it's God's vote. It's God's vote in that dispute. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly right. And Paul says it uh, this way, Jesus Christ was declared with power That's right. to be the Son of God exactly. by the resurrection. He was horizoned is yeah. the literal Greek word. He yeah. was horizoned. You know how horizon yeah, yeah, marks yeah, right. a demarcation? Yeah. He was horizoned in power as the Son of God. That's yeah. what Romans 1.4 is saying. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so you have the resurrection, obviously. Um, and then... Luke has his own kind of commission. That's right. Um, and then basically, I mean, it, it ends by saying, stay in Jerusalem. And um, Jesus goes to the right hand. And then he goes to the right <laughs> hand. And he says... We know I mean, what that means. <laughs> totally. He's enthroned. Yeah. In power. Sovereign. And... In Acts 2, he distributes the Spirit, and then which is in the I, gift yeah. of the new covenant. But uh, I love... Uh, so I did my master's thesis on Matthew 28, the Great Commission... And it's funny because Jesus, he has this promise of his presence. You know, mm-hmm. the last line of the of the whole gospel is, behold, I'm going to be with you always. Mm-hmm. And then he leaves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly you're right. Like, Wait, you're like, what? Exactly right. You're going to be the victorious Messiah, so I'm going to get crucified. Yeah, right. Okay, you know, right? that's all right. But I love it that you have the close of Luke is like we talked about in the last podcast where it's like there's this anticipation of okay, what happens next? And then volume two, the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus ascends to the Father and then the Holy Spirit comes and indwells And the people. rest is history. And the rest is, <laughs> and the rest is what we're living in That's right exactly now. That's exactly right. You know, we, right. we are these new spirit indwelt embodiment of the temple of God that goes over the whole earth. That have been given an enablement both individually and together mm-hmm. to minister in such a way that God's goodness and grace can be demonstrated even to people whose backs are turned to God. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Just thinking, we serve a good God, one whose story is so much bigger than I could even imagine. And if we realize what it is that we have received by his goodness and grace, then the only thing that's left to do is to give that goodness allegiance and praise. Yeah. yeah. The appropriate response. 
And, uh, and that has real, so real uh, implications for everything we do. And everything we're going through. And a lot of people are asking, hey, how do I live in the midst of this? And mortality is in the face of yeah, everybody. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Cur- like literally. That's right. And yet, um, I think what, what we see in the Gospel of Luke is Jesus going, hey, come with me. I am living this kingdom kind of self-sacrificing, upside-down nature, kingdom life, where you give yourself for other people. Where you love God and love you, others. Yeah, where you love God and love others. That's <laughs> what, what he said. And it's worth it. That's right. Yeah. The one who loses his life for my sake and, and the gospel will find it. And then to cheat with a little bit of John, find it abundantly. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I love it. Well, Dr. Bach, thank you so much for your time, man. It's, it's a joy and a pleasure to, you know, when you come in here and just start moving through all this stuff it's just uh one it's it's a challenge to me it's a pleasure to watch how you use your gifts for the kingdom and the way that that uh the lord has gifted you so we we appreciate it well it's my pleasure and and we love what you do at watermark even though you occupy the space of the gospel to john (laughs) (laughs) we're okay with that yeah we're okay with that well we hope you've enjoyed these past two weeks as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke. And and we invite you, whether you follow this Jesus or not, well, if you don't, we would encourage you to follow Jesus. And if you do, to just be challenged to represent him through the power of the Spirit in the way that you live your life, especially in the environment that we're in today in a way that honors the King. He is the King, we're not. So you guys have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. As always, if you like it, then like it. <laughs> <laughs> what does that look like, Karen? On social media. Okay, yeah. On the media. Yeah, on the media. And share it with people. Yeah, that's a good idea. And then if you have questions, email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Bye. Peace. Peace.